The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, remember this time last week when there was that thing that had the U.S. economy on the edge of catastrophe and apocalypse, maybe a vague memory of something called the debt ceiling and all the negotiations around it. If it's already been wiped from your mind, don't feel bad because this is what the media and political news industry does to our psyches. Well, as the Biden administration is now running campaigns, spinning this as a huge win, we're not going to forget what really happened with this debt ceiling deal. Uh, Today's guest is going to be David Dayen, the executive editor of The American Prospect. He's going to help us further unpack the details of what actually happened here uh, and what got traded away in the latest hostage taking. So if you want to listen to one thing that's going to tell you everything you need to know about what actually happened and cuts through all of the bullshit, that's what this episode is going to be for. And we're going to ask the big question, have Democrats actually in a perverse way learned to accept what happened? And do they even actually want what happened? Was this actually a victory for them? Was this already pre-scripted, a preordained outcome? That's what we're going to be discussing later on in the show. For our paid subscribers, this week on the premium podcast feed, Dave and Josh of the Audit Podcast, they have an extended interview with the acclaimed author and climate activist, my pal, Naomi Klein. And they're talking about how Prager University, uh, a subject they've been covering on the Audit Podcast, how Prager University has become an engine of climate change misinformation. They discuss how fossil fuel funded groups have shifted their tactics in recent years from what you might call hard denialism to the rhetoric of personal freedom. So a a softer but more insidious kind of climate denialism. And speaking of climate change, coming up next week, we're going to have a bonus episode focusing on the many shocking climate change developments in California and the American West that touch on everything from the ocean carbon dioxide increases to insurance companies pulling out of the state to legislation around financial disclosure and whether companies who operate in California are going to have to start telling us Uh, how much they are contributing to the climate emergency. So look for that in the Lever Premium podcast feed next week, as well as a special bonus episode of Lever Time. If you want to access our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. As we always say, the only way independent media grows and thrives is because of passionate supporters and word of mouth. We need all the help we can get to spread the word and combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. Producer Frank is out on vacation this week, so in his place to talk about a couple of other news items before we get to the debt ceiling discussion, we have Lucy Dean Stockton, the Lever's news editor. How's it going, Lucy? Hey, really happy to be here. Um, I am reporting live from New York City. It is good to have you here. So, so. Some of the other big news this week, uh, on top of the debt ceiling, a, a story that kind of 
flew under the radar, even though it's um, it should be on everybody's radar, is that um, the federal government this week said that we now have the uh, largest amount of carbon dioxide in uh, the livable atmosphere at any other than any other time in recorded history, and that that uh, amount of CO two increased at among the greatest clips year over year that we have ever seen. So that's some pretty catastrophic and terrible and and terrifying news. Uh, and unfortunately, it's 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 barely anywhere in the news when you turn on the news, when you click around the internet, like it sort of, it, it barely made a blip. So I've been kind of bummed out about it. I've been kind of uh, scared about it. But we actually have some some a little bit of good news uh, on some climate issues that the lever has been reporting, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, there actually has been something that I think should be much more notable in the news, um, which is that last week, the California Senate passed a bill to divest the country's two largest public pensions from fossil fuels. And they've had incredible support. I think over 140 organizations, including unions representing 470,000 members, um, the bill would move to the assembly and then would have to be signed by the governor, but it could actually take effect by January, 2024. Um, and I believe it would divest $44 billion in fossil fuels that the two impacted funds hold. California is on the brink of becoming the world's fourth largest economy. So it would have a global impact to divest that much from fossil fuels at a, at a really a global scale. I've seen not very much reporting on it, but I have been proud to see it in our own weekly edition of You Love to See It, where we send good news to subscribers. That's every Saturday. If you, if for folks who haven't heard of it, it's, as, as Lucy just said, our product called You Love to See It. We do a roundup of things that uh, you don't have to feel shitty about, uh, things that are actually uh, going fairly well in the world. Now, look, I, I don't think we should overstate this. $44 billion, it's a lot, but it's, it's, it's not a lot in some ways i mean it's it's obviously 44 billion dollars is a lot of money right. but in a multi trillion dollar uh, economy and a a multi multi trillion dollar global economy it's still a drop in the ocean but here's why i think this is uh, more important than just the amount of money at issue in this bill public pensions are about 5 or 6 trillion dollars. They're some of the largest pools of capital in the whole world. And California's pension funds are kind of trendsetters, industry setters in uh, in that world. Uh, so if a pension fund as large as California's actually divests from fossil fuels uh, and fossil fuel investments, that is not just one or two random pension funds doing that. That is kind of the the industry standard pension funds in a pool of capital that the fossil fuel industry desperately relies on. Now, there was another piece of good news on the climate situation, also at least in and around uh, California. Uh, tell us about that. Right. There has been a bill proposed in California that would require transparency from companies to report their carbon emissions. So it is currently being fought by pretty enormous companies, Meta, Exxon, In-N-Out, the ones that you would assume. So, I mean, it's, it's a transparency measure. So I think it wouldn't necessarily have any sort of compliance or punitive effect, but it would force companies at a national level um, 
to report how many emissions that they're truly making and also report them at a comprehensive level in what's called scope three emissions. So these are the kinds of emissions that often get left out of the supply chain. But let's say for a company like In-N-Out, 90% of their emissions are actually coming from cattle and dairy that's being produced much further up the supply chain. Or, and th- they aren't necessarily being reflected in the scope one and two emissions that they that in and out reports like that they spend on electricity to power to power their stores. But if they were forced to include scope three emissions, their actual emissions would probably be four to five times higher. It's actually the same thing that Exxon does, which I think is truly shocking. Exxon and actually all of the oil companies only report scope one and two emissions. So the kinds of emissions that they use when they're making and managing their refinement centers, but they don't include the oil that they burn. Well, why would you include right. that? I mean, why would you include the oil that you burn? That, that, that doesn't count. That, that doesn't count. Obviously, obviously, obviously that, doesn't, that count. doesn't count. That just gets pushed to the right. consumer. And actually, Exxon doesn't have to report um, all of the oil that they are producing and burning. They only... That makes, that makes total sense. <laughs> it makes total sense. I mean, oil burning oil doesn't actually do anything to the, to the climate. That makes total sense. I mean, this is how insane all of this is. We're going to be talking a lot more about uh, all of this stuff on our next bonus episode. So folks uh, folks who, who are super interested in what's going on on uh, climate stuff, and there is a ton going on in the American West. That's coming up in our next bonus segment which will be out on the premium podcast feed uh, on Monday. Uh, one more quick story before we get to uh, to our discussion about the debt ceiling. Uh, the Lever this week reported yet another story about Leonard Leo. Uh, Leonard Leo, the uh, conservative operative who has marshaled hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to take over the American court system. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So last year, thousands of voters in Kansas were voting on a ballot measure that would have outlawed abortion in the state. And during that time, there was a lot of the same misinformation that you could assume would happen. But to their shock, they actually lost the ballot. And this was, I think, an extra an extra surprising win because thousands of voters had received these really deceptive text messages that sort of were, were they were extremely misleading. Um, they called uh, the ballot measure basically a woman's choice, and they told people to vote no on the measure, um, or they told people to vote against it. Um, but they were funded by anti-abortion groups, and we knew that those anti-abortion groups were trying to trick voters into basically outlawing abortion in the state. What we didn't know is that Leonard Leo, the same guy who was responsible for architecting this, the conservative Supreme Court majority that we have today, and has in the past, per our reporting, received the largest dark money transfer in history, he was the one who was also funding these groups um, and basically pushing these anti-abortion fights on a state level. I mean, I've always, I've I've said this before, I'll say it again. Uh, When it comes to the financial world, you don't have to open too many doors to find a private equity billionaire uh, behind almost everything in American financial life, uh, in everything in American business. It's kind of the same thing with Leonard Leo. I mean, it really is a good rule of thumb that if something shitty and deceptive and horrible is happening in politics, somewhere in some piece of that, 
Leonard Leo or Leonard Leo's network probably has some of its fingerprints on it. And look, it's our job to to report that, to spotlight that, to to show who's really um, pulling the levers of power right. uh, when it comes to these. Yeah, things. and 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 again and again, it's Leonard Leo. It's actually really shocking, and I mean, it's amazing. I think to have Andrew Perez on staff because he is probably the Leonard Leo expert in the country. Um, but <laughs> he is. He, Leonard Leo has his hands on basically every bad thing you can find in this country. Working at a federal and also a state level um, from like organizations like the Foundation for Government Accountability and also um, the the same organization that was pushing to uh, dismantle child labor laws all over the country. I mean, those those have all been campaigns funded and in some way managed by Leonard Leo. He really is ubiquitous. And you're, you're right to, to call out Andrew Perez. He, he really is. Probably the the country's the, the American media's uh, major expert on it. He just digs and digs and digs. And just a reminder, you can find all of Andrew's work at levernews.com. Lucy, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. We're going to stop there because we're going to get to now our main interview about yes, the debt ceiling. I know you may be bored about it. You may it may you know may all seem like noise, but this is the one. Uh, podcast episode where we're going to break all of it down. So basically, if you listen to one thing about what actually happened in the debt ceiling, what the Democratic leaders and the Republican leaders are celebrating, stay tuned for this interview with David Dayan of the American Prospect. We break it all down. That's coming up after a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. June 3rd could have been X date. That's the term for the day the U.S. government could have defaulted on its debts. In today's main story, President Biden and Congress averted that catastrophic outcome that experts say would have crippled the U.S. economy. And now Democrats and Republicans are hailing this debt deal as some sort of huge win, leaving corporate media to try to memory hole all the details. It'll be a distant memory except for millions of Americans who are going to be economically crushed by those details. Today, I'm joined by David Dayan, an investigative journalist and the executive editor of The American Prospect, because we refuse to forget the debt ceiling fiasco just yet. David Dayan and I... David Dayan and I explore... Dave and I explore the bill's details, the history of the debt limit becoming a political tool, and why Democrats missed the chance to fix this problem before it could be used as a weapon against the working class. We look at why the Biden administration is celebrating all of this as a win. Literally, the DNC is now doing ads touting this debt deal. We look at how all of that seems to scream the quiet part out loud, admitting that the budget cuts the student debt payments, the fossil fuel giveaways, and all of the rest of the mess in this bill, admitting that that may actually be what the Democratic Party always wanted. David Dayan writes frequently about the intersection of politics and economics, and his latest book is called Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. He's been tracking the debt ceiling negotiations from the very beginning. Here's that interview. Hey, Dave, how you doing? How did you survive X date? <laughs> uh, you know, X date is getting so commercial. I mean, even even in <laughs> May, I was seeing all the decorations up in the stores. 
so, you know, uh, I, I got through it, but it's always a tough time with family. X date, of course, refers to the uh, day that we were uh, supposed to default on our debts had there not been a, a debt deal. And it was the name, by the way, of the uh, newsletter of the American Prospect that was covering the debt deal. OK, let's 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 take a step back here. And I, I don't want to just start this story just in the like last few weeks, because I think that's a way to lie about what happened. Right. Um, there's this idea that, oh, we had to pass this particular debt deal, uh, because it was the only choice, uh, in front of us. And basically you, uh, in my view, uh, you have to be a goldfish who forgets your entire world every 15 minutes to accept that as a storyline. And I think a lot of liberals accept that as a storyline, because I think, frankly, a lot of liberals have been taught to have goldfish brain by places like MSNBC. So I, I refuse to start this story like two mm -hmm. weeks ago. I want to start this story. Um, back in the fall after oh. the, uh, the midterm. I, I want to start it well before that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I okay. Great. Started so, in 2011. Okay, so let, okay. So let's, 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 let's really take a moment here to talk about where does the story of the debt deal begin? It really begins in 2011. So, uh, prior to 2011, the debt ceiling was a, uh, annoying yet necessary kind of functionary thing that the government did every so often. Uh, prior to 1917, anytime the government wanted to borrow money, that bond deal had to be approved by Congress, which can you imagine today? <laughs> like every single bond would have to be approved by Congress. So in 1917, they came up with a time saver which was called the debt ceiling. And what they said is, okay, uh, Congress will still say how much you can borrow, but then you can do whatever bond deals you want up to that point. And uh, they would set this arbitrary figure. You can only raise this much money in debt. Uh, and then it would be increased uh, routinely 80 times, I think, uh, between 1917 and 2011. Then what happened in 2011, Barack Obama was president and the Tea Party uh, had controlled the House. Uh, it's a similar situation as now. Uh, Republicans only had one branch of, uh, of Congress. And uh, they sort of intimated that they were going to take hostage this routine thing called the debt limit uh, to get some ideological priorities uh, for their base. And Barack Obama was into it. <laughs> he thought it was a good idea to use the debt ceiling as a, a lever to, uh, to put together a grand bargain on deficits, to cut the deficit in a way that no one party would be responsible. You know, we can throw Medicare in there. We can throw Social Security in there. We can throw spending cuts in there. And no, everybody could point to everybody else and say, this is what we had to do. And we all take the leap together. And uh, that process ended up being kind of a failure because uh, Republicans wouldn't go along with the tax increases. That was kind of the only reason that it failed. Barack Obama was altogether ready to cut Medicare, raise the eligibility age, cut Social Security, all of that. Um, but... Uh, what happened in 2011, which ended up with a debt commission that failed, and then they did these arbitrary cuts at the federal budget, uh, called the sequester. Uh, what that did is it, it 
taught Republicans something. Oh, we can take this hostage and get things that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to get. And because it was validated by even Barack Obama, even the liberal socialist Marxist Barack Obama, uh, then we, uh, you know, we have cover to continue to do this. And the media decided that this was a normal thing that, uh, that, that parties do. You always get a concession for the debt limit. It never happened before 2011, but now it was normal that, that, that you can only, you always get something for the debt limit. And so that brings us to where we are today in 2023, uh, when, uh, Joe Biden said, I'm not going to negotiate over this. And then as soon as Republicans in the House pass something, he started negotiating. Okay, so so there's the history of something that was supposed to be a shortcut becoming uh, uh, metastasizing into a, a a hostage tool, a hostage taking right. tool. I I want to start now in the in this latest iteration right. of that. I want to start in the lame duck session of sure. Congress because I, I one thing that's been very annoying uh, to me throughout this whole thing has been. Well, we have to pass this deal now because that was the only choice that we could possibly ever have. And I keep going back to right after the election, uh, the midterm election, 2022, Bernie Sanders says we should pass a clean debt ceiling right now. Janet Yellen says we should pass a clean debt ceiling right now. And Dick Durbin coming out and essentially saying we don't feel like making time on the calendar for this. I mean, he he literally said there isn't enough time. And worth mentioning, it could have been done through so-called reconciliation. Uh, you didn't need the 60 votes. Now, whether the votes were there or not to do it, that's that's a question. And it's a question I will ask you. Why didn't they do a clean debt ceiling in the lame duck session of Congress? And is it fair to look at them not doing that and assume that they didn't actually want to do that? Well, again, I think I have to go back a little earlier because although I will answer your question eventually, um, it was known for years after the 2011 experience that when Republicans got half a chance, they would try this gambit again. In fact, they were extremely open before the election and said, Oh yeah, we're going to take that debt limit hostage. We're going to, we're going to try to get some, some, some concessions for it. So everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew what would happen if Republicans got any kind of leverage. Um, and in, indeed it was known at the very beginning of the Biden administration. You know, interestingly, there was a debt ceiling increase in, uh, the Obama stimulus package. He, he just threw that in and just to get it out of the way. Uh, the American Rescue Plan was at the height of the honeymoon period of uh, the Biden administration. It was in reconciliation. Uh, they could have thrown it in the American Rescue Plan and they could have raised it to an absurd height so that we would never have to deal with this ever again if they really wanted to. Uh, but they could have done it. And uh, they could have done it at every step along the way. You could even argue that during the Trump administration, when Democrats had control of the House, they could have said, OK, our, our, we're taking the debt ceiling hostage. And the only thing that you can do is get rid of the debt ceiling. 
Like, like we will give you a clean debt ceiling if it's never a thing again. They could have done that in 2019, 2018, 2020. So uh, there were many, many, many missed opportunities, including the opportunity that you talk about in, in, uh, at the, uh, in the lame duck session. When you know what the circumstance is going to be, in a matter of months, Republicans are going to be in control of the House, and they have stated as their objective to take the debt ceiling hostage. So, uh, you know, Dick Durbin says we don't have time. What also I, I heard both privately and publicly is, oh, Joe Manchin's not going to do this. Kirsten Sinema is not going to do this. Uh, we don't have the votes to do a clean debt ceiling. And the question is, you know, you're going to be negotiating with someone either way. You're either going to be negotiating with Kevin McCarthy in 2023, or you're going to be negotiating with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in 2022. And, you know, you'll have to decide what is the easier negotiation? You know, what is the negotiation that you can live with? They're the one where Republicans wouldn't be involved at all, although, you know, you can call Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, whatever you want, but it would only, they would be the, the, the rightmost poll in, in, in the negotiation or one where the Freedom Caucus is the rightmost poll in the negotiation. I know what I think probably would have gotten a better deal and that would have been doing it in 20. Okay. So I, so I, I, I don't feel like I'm crazy for looking at this fact pattern and saying, okay, like Democrats didn't want to do that. They, 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 now, now I, I think there is a, it depends on how you look at politics is politics house of cards where everything is, you know, uh, gamed right. out or is, is politics veep? Did they just, you know, sort of screw it up, not think, think it through. I have trouble believing that they haven't thought it through over and over and over again in, in, in the context that you well, just, I mean, I, I look, I, I think back to your, your goldfish analogy. And I think that the debt ceiling is really a circumstance of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, when people get through it, they breathe a sigh of relief. I mean, we're talking about this a week after the debt, the debt limit passed. And you wouldn't even know that there was such a thing as a debt limit. If you read the news, uh, if you listen to politicians, uh, I think that they, they breathe this sigh of relief and they just move on. And uh, they see it as annoying. They see it as something for some reason that's going to affect their reelection, even though there's no history of this whatsoever, of any candidate in history losing because they voted for a debt ceiling increase. Um, they, they see it as, as, as painful and they want to put off the pain as long as they can. So I think it's as much Veep as it is House of Cards. But uh, you can't discount that the fact that failing to deal with this had serious, serious consequences. And, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to choose, I feel like, between stupid or evil when, <laughs> when you're talking about. Well, okay. So let's get into the details of, 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 of what happened here. Joe Biden is running out and presenting this as an incredible victory that we should all be uh, cheering about and celebrating. We'll talk more about that framing uh, in a second. But before we get to, get to that. Let's talk about what are the major tenets here of this this agreement? What do Democrats say they got out of it? What do Republicans say they got out of it? And where do you come down on what this thing right. is? Um, so uh, building back together, which is Joe Biden's like uh, a campaign hype team uh, for reelection, <laughs> Uh, put out an ad 
thanking Joe Biden for the debt ceiling deal. And they, they mention actually four specific things that like, thank you for A, B, C, and D. And A, B, and C are things that are, that were left out of the debt deal. <laughs> They're like, social security was protected. Medicare was protected. Medicaid was protected. They're literally they're not in the debt deal, and that's what they're celebrating. So if your pitch that you got to win is that we didn't touch these other things, then you didn't get a win, right? Because you can't name one thing that's in the deal that, that you can point to and say that's a victory. Um, so what is in this deal? Uh, uh, the biggest thing, obviously, is a, a spending cap. It's two years. Uh, it freezes spending uh, for non-defense discretionary programs at last year's level, fiscal year 2023. But that's a very misleading term, freezing, right? Because we're in a, a world of 5% inflation right now. So anytime you keep the nominal figure of the budget constant, you're actually cutting it by 5% in real terms. It just costs more to do the things, the same things that you have to do year over year. And so there's a, there's that 5% cut, uh, in the first year. And then, uh, the, the cap allows for a 1% increase in year two. Uh, so that's a, a not, a, that's a real cut of a, another few percent, uh, depending on where you think inflation is going to land. So, uh, this is, this is a cut to real resources. It's a cut to government capacity. It's, it's only a cut to with 13% of the total budget because they did leave Medicare out, Social Security out. The, the defense budget gets to grow because that's magical spending that has nothing to do with, <laughs> uh, with, with our budget. Um, defense spending gets to grow. Veterans programs, that was the one thing in that building back together ad they could point to. We protected our veterans. Veterans programs continue to grow, even though it's growing into a pot of privatization. We talk about that. Like, like what's actually happening with the VA is, is pretty bad. But, um, but that, that nominal sort of pot of money gets to grow. But everything else, talking about uh, housing vouchers, talking about Meals on Wheels, we're talking about the Women, Infants, and Children Nutrition Program, we're talking about food safety, we're talking about you know, uh, the budgets for the Department of Labor, the Department of the Interior, the Department of State, all of those other things are getting a, a real cut in, in real terms. That is the biggest thing in this deal. And of course, it sets what is called a baseline. So if your spending is frozen and then only goes up 1%, that next year, it's unlikely you're going to take it up 20% to make up for those, those, that, that frozen spending previously. So it's just going to be lower, lower across the board. And, uh, there are, there are some estimates. I don't really buy the estimates, but there are some estimates out there that say as much as a trillion dollars would be cut from the baseline of what it would be if we didn't freeze spending in those two years. So that's the big thing. And then there are a bunch of other smaller, but just as consequential things. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's the the Mountain Valley Pipeline, right. uh, which is the expediting Joe Manchin's uh, massive fossil fuel pipeline. Something that uh, progressives thought they had uh, won a victory on by keeping out of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the, the student debt stuff. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. You have some reporting that's going to be coming out this week about that. Tell us a little sure. bit about that, um, and we'll come back to the pipeline because I think there's a larger story there too. But yeah, um, as far as student debt, what what this uh, deal says 
is uh, that uh, in 90 days, essentially, by September 1st, um, the payment pause, which has been going on for three and a half years, uh, borrowers have not paid their student loan payments. And by the way, the sky has not fallen in those three and a half years. <laughs> like, like things have gone on in America without student students having to pay $400 a month and, uh, in, in, in really, uh, uh, and often being abused by that system. Um, that's going to have to restart. Uh, the Biden administration said, oh, we were going to restart it anyway on September 1st, but now they have no flexibility whatsoever. We're waiting for the outcome of a court case uh, at the Supreme Court on whether Biden's cancellation program will be allowed to go forward. Um, but whether it does or not, whether 20, uh, whether 40 million people see a cut of between 10 and $20,000 their debt, which would be the total figure for about half of those people. So it would 20 million people would get their, their loans completely eradicated. Um, whether that happens or not, tens of millions of people are going to start having to repay their debts on, uh, uh, on September 1st. And the way this was described to me by one advocate is that we have never seen in American history a loan portfolio of 40 million borrowers start overnight to have to restart and everybody starts paying again. We've never seen it in the finance world, let alone in the government world. It is going to be prone to an absolute nightmare in terms of, first of all, the way that we pay student loans is there are these private companies called servicers who are then contracted to do the day-to-day -day operations on loans. So they end up uh, getting uh, the payments. Half, more than half of those servicers have changed during, since, since <laughs> 2020, when the payment pause came in, some left the business, they moved the servicing to other companies. And so sometime in the next few months, uh, a, a student borrower is going to get a piece of paper, probably more often than not from a company that they've never heard of saying you owe us money on a loan that's been dormant for three and a half years. Do you really think that there's going to, that's going to be a perfectly smooth process? Uh, what I've uh, learned also is that the last uh, major study of a servicing company who are, uh, you know, some of the biggest bottom feeders in this entire economy, the last time we've seen a, saw a major transfer of servicing rights from one company to another, it was about two and a half million loans. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found that one out of every five of those accounts was screwed up in one way or another. Either it was the wrong balance or they missed that certain payments were made. Uh, it, it was just messed up in one way or another. And this amount of transferring is probably four or five times that. And so we're going to see major errors. These companies have no capacity to talk to every one of those 40 million borrowers. You're going to see hold times of hours and hours and hours. Right. So we're, we're just, just to be clear, you're talking about, it's like a double whammy. It's like, we're going to restart your debt payment and bury you in impossible Byzantine clerical right. errors and paperwork. I mean, just like misery on top of misery. Uh, and, and this is what was baked into 
in, into this this bill, which is which is horrifying. I I do want to go back to yes. the pipeline. Okay, let's go back mm-hmm. to the pipeline because that that isn't a small no. thing. So here we are in a week in which the uh, uh, the federal government has admitted that uh, there is the largest increase, or at least one of the largest increases in CO two in the in the atmosphere at a time when climate scientists are warning that we're mm-hmm. about to uh, make. Uh, the 1.5 degree targets uh, uh, impossible. Here we are. That's mm-hmm. where we are, and the federal government is expediting a fossil fuel pipeline uh, and shielding it, or at least trying to shield it in this legislation from any kind of court challenge at all. Uh, and it just so happens that one of the companies behind the pipeline is not only one of Joe Manchin's biggest donors. But is also one of uh, its its executives are uh, among collectively uh, some of the biggest donors to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the company just dumped one hundred and fifty plus thousand dollars into the coffers of three key swing Democratic senators in the months leading up to this. And there's um, another scandal so, so that, where uh, a mystery purchaser of stock in yeah, this company. Yeah. Four days before the surprise announcement that the pipeline would be expedited in this bill, uh, made off with a huge payday by selling stock, uh, or by buying stock, I believe. Um, it, it's it, the, the corruption is very thick with this. Um, and, uh, and there's another dimension to it, actually. Um, because, you know, there's been talk in Washington about this, this bargain on permitting, right? It's called permitting reform. You hear about this a lot. Joe Manchin put out a bill last year that was a permitting reform bill. It included expediting his pipeline, but it also included some other things. And there's this, supposed to be this give and take in it. So yes, we're going to be make it easier to permit, you know, fossil fuel projects, infrastructure projects, energy projects, but also uh, we're going to make it easier to connect renewable energy to the grid, and we're going to make it easier to uh, uh, build transmission lines so that that renewable energy can go all across the country. And so that's supposed to be the bargain, right? So, so uh, pro-climate activists get something and pro-fossil fuel interests get something. Well, here's what happened in this bill. Only the pro-fossil fuel interests got something. They got the pipeline and they also got this uh, change to the permitting rules uh, around deadlines on, uh, uh, for, for writing environmental impact statements. The transmission part of this, which was apparently originally in the bill, but after monopoly utilities got done with the bill, uh, all they could did on transmission was create a study that can take up to two and a half years to conduct. So in this time where we're saying, oh, there are these long timelines and there's the, all these studies and we got to get rid of these studies, they added a two and a half year study for transmission. Um, and, and what this means is that if down the road, we actually do a permitting bill, which are still talking about in Washington, no longer is the Mountain Valley pipeline a bargaining chip in that no longer is, are these changes in the timelines for environmental impact statements, uh, 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 a bargaining chip. You have to give much bigger stuff now to the, the fossil fuel side of the equation in order to get that transmission reform that is actually desperately needed to connect renewable energy to the grid. So this is now a worse deal, uh, potentially, uh, down the road 
because of the really bad deal that we got into this bill. Okay, so everybody who's listened this far, uh, thus far, is is probably uh, super angry, uh, maybe depressed, um, uh, feeling uh, sort of an impulse for self harm, uh, knowing <laughs> that's my specialty. Uh, that, <laughs> okay, so, but but they're also hearing a much different message from the Democratic Party. Um, th- there are ads uh, that the DNC has just launched. Uh, let's play a clip of the ad. When MAGA Republicans threatened to wreck the U.S. economy, President Biden took charge, secured a bipartisan agreement, and prevented chaos, all while protecting Social Security healthcare, and other critical programs. President Biden delivers for us again. So Joe Biden and the Democratic Party are portraying this as a giant win. So I guess explain how you think Joe Biden is portraying what you've just laid out as a win and and whether we can I mean, I think we can take away something from that, that if you put two and two together, it seems to be that the Democratic Party, that at least the Democratic leadership, is declaring victory and sees as a win all of the things you just laid out. Is is that a fair takeaway? So, I mean, the way that they're framing it, the way I've heard it directly from White House officials is, you know, I mean, the biggest win is that it could have been worse. Right. That that's that's the number one thing that they say, like, you know, they say that this with Republicans in charge of one branch of Congress, there was always going to be a budget negotiation and that this turned out pretty much like a normal budget negotiation that we would have in a world without a debt limit. That's that's their pitch. I mean, let's let's just lay it out, at least to be somewhat fair to them. Um, uh I don't know that that's entirely true. First of all, why would the Mountain Valley pipeline be in a normal budget negotiation? Why would work requirements, which we haven't even talked about in uh, the TANF program, which is welfare and, and SNAP, which is food stamp, why would that be in a, a normal budget negotiation? By the way, the defenders of, of uh, Biden say, oh, well, but we got this exemption, and if you look at the CBO score, the CBO says we're going to have more people uh, collecting food stamps under this deal. Let's demystify that a little bit because it's important uh, because it shows a way that that you know people think and and the way that they're spinning this. Um, there are two things that were changed as far as SNAP food stamps and work requirement. One is an actual work requirement change, which says that. Um, Right now, if you're able-bodied, you don't have any dependents, you don't have any children, uh, you have to work for a minimum of 20 hours a week to get food stamps for more than three months. And uh, that uh, that lasts until you're age 49. And they added that up, they extended it to age 54. So now people between the ages of 50 and 54 uh, have to go out and look for work. They want to keep their very meager $6 a day food stamp benefit um, uh, for more than three months. Uh, the second thing that they did was they said, okay, uh, if you're homeless, you're a veteran, or you're just out of the foster care system up to age 24, we're going to eliminate that work requirement for you entirely. Um, 
So the theory that CBO has put out and that the Biden defenders have put out is that, well, there will be more people helped by the, those, that new exemption on homeless individuals and, and veterans and so on, uh, than will be hurt by, uh, by, by the extension to age 54. So first of all, you're saying, well, you know, some people will get this meager food benefit and some people will lose it. So it's a net good thing, which is, you know, kind of, kind of cruel in its own right. The second thing is doesn't take into account how hard it is to sign up homeless individuals for a, a food stamp program. You don't have to have an address, but if there's ever a change in the program, like there just was, you need to contact them so that they fill out the new form that shows what, you know, they're doing. You, you still have to pass an income test. And so they need like pay stubs or something or an IR, uh, you know, a tax return that, that, that isn't in abundance. You need people who are on the ground signing up individuals, uh, who are newly exempt, which by the way, chronic homeless individuals are supposed to already be exempt. The fact that they had to make a new exemption shows you that it's really, really hard to get these people into this federal program. And when we talk to anti-hunger advocates, social workers, people on the ground, they said, there is no way we're going to sign up a lot of people, not without a lot more resources that we don't currently have. So this is sophistry. I mean, the idea that the CBO can spit out numbers from a model and say, oh, we're going to have more people on food stamps. It's just not true. It's, it, it just does not face reality. And it's that kind of meager thinking, that kind of uncritical thinking that has characterized the entire process by which the White House and their defenders have said this is a big victory for them. And obviously there's politics here in this. They're trying to say that anything that passes through Congress is a win. Uh, they're, they're, it's almost like we're supposed to forget about all the details that you just laid out. Oh, something happened. Uh, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Thus and so this is a huge victory. But I think if you're looking at all that you just laid out, and you see Democratic leaders celebrating it as a great victory. I don't think it's it's wrongheaded to say this must be what at least some of them wanted or at, at the absolute minimum. Clearly, something that many of them were absolutely willing to tolerate, were willing to, to, to simply accept. There, there was no fight here. I guess I, I just want to end on one other set of questions which came up which is the even towards the 11th hour or X date, mm -hmm. as it were, there were folks pushing for the president to use the 14th right. amendment. Uh, it popped up and then it got sort of swatted back down. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that would have looked like. Was that, in your view, a realistic uh, possibility? I mean, it sounds like something that I could imagine Donald Trump doing because I can imagine a Republican president actually fighting for things they purport to believe in. And it's hard for me, and I don't credit them for that. I'm just saying that like, they seem to not uh, be governed by only a respect for so-called norms. But I just want to hear from you whether you think that was a legitimate sure. option. So, I mean, parenthetically, by the way, it's not that Democrats are just celebrating uh, this this deal. Uh, more Democrats voted 
for this bill than Republicans uh, in the House and in the Senate. And in fact, at the moment when the bill was actually imperiled, it was something called the rule, which, you know, as you worked in Congress, uh, it never happens that there's a bipartisan rule that that usually the, the majority party in the House has to pass something called the rule, which sets the terms for debate. And it's always a party line vote, always a party line vote. And, and there's usually nobody uh, on the majority party side that that dissents. Well, you know, the Freedom Caucus voted against the rule, which means that McCarthy did not have enough vote. And Democrats came to the rescue of the bill by supplying 50 votes for the rule, which never, ever, ever happened. There was talk that there was some kind of side deal that, that Democrats were going to get something out of that. Hakeem Jeffries, is the, the, the Democratic leader in the, in the House, denied that. He said, no, there was no deal. We were just doing our duty, is what he said. Um, so, uh, and, and there are other members who are furious about that. The fact that you would help on the rule without getting something is, is crazy. So I just wanted to put that in, into that context. See, that's, that's the tell. That is to me yet another tell that this is what the Democratic leaders wanted and the most charitable possible view, if you don't buy that, this is clearly what Democratic leaders were willing to, if not happy to accept all of the uh, the things that you've laid out here, all of the things that you and the uh, great reporting team at the American Prospect has been reporting. Uh, David Dayen is uh, the executive editor of the American Prospect. I encourage you to follow him on Twitter, follow his work, sign up for the American Prospect, get its emails. I rely on it. We at The Lever rely on it all the time. And uh, Dave, I, I feel like I'm, we're going to be back here in two years uh, when the next step I mean, that's the is crazy up, thing, right? Uh, like we, we, this was a hostage situation. They, uh, Democrats paid a ransom and Republicans didn't let go of the hostage. They allowed Democrats to rent the hostage for two years. And then they're going to get a back up a truck and, and kidnap the hostage again and, and put him in the bank and say, uh, you have to give us more ransom money. That's, that's what we did. Yeah. I, I feel like we're going to be back here in another two we years. Didn't, we didn't uh, for burn X the logo. Date, X date. Yeah. We, 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 we kept <laughs> right. X date two uh, electric boogaloo. The, that'll be, that'll be next two years from now. Uh, yes. The X dating that, that perfect. Uh, David Dayan, thank you so thank much. You. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get lever time premium, you get to hear next week's bonus episode. It's a big deep dive on how the climate crisis is getting super real and super scary in the American West, and how new fights over climate legislation in the American West could determine climate policy in this entire country for years to come. To listen to Lever Time Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you also get access to all of the Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. That's money that supports our journalism. One last favor. Please, please, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. Literally, write it right now on the app that you are listening to. And check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Levertime Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. 
It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello, with help from The Lever's lead producer, Jared Jacang-Mayer. 